Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to EcoReport. For WFHB, I'm Todd Wicks. And I'm Don Guerra. On October 31st, the Bloomington City Council approved issuing $10 million worth of bonds to fund more trails, parks, and street trees. Today, the initiative goes back to the Bloomington Board of Park Commissioners for final approval. City of Bloomington Communications Director Yael Cassander says the Bicentennial Parks projects are expected to extend Bloomington's trail systems. There are seven individual projects that were separated into three separate distinct bonds. Some of them have to do with our wildest spaces like Cascades Park and also Griffey, so turning a hiking trail around Griffey Lake that would link up to the Cascades Trails and we anticipate to the new hospital site uh, on the bypass. Also in the Cascades, it would convert part of that big, long roadway that goes through the valley into a bike pedestrian trail and then ultimately connect up with College and Miller Showers Park. And then the first one, I think, that was introduced is this really magnificent transformation of 7th Street. So from all the way over on the west side where the Beeline Trail intersects 7th Street, you know, sort of near Le Petit Café, all the way to campus, turning that into a shared street. So that would mean that there was, uh, there would be dedicated bike lanes protected by a median with trees from the traffic. That would connect from the Beeline Trail on the west all along 7th Street, and then, of course, um, we're not in control of IU's campus, but on the other side of IU, on Union, it would go all the way to the bypass where that underpass is and then connect on to the 7th and Longwood Greenway. So effectively, it would be a really safe, protected biking all the way from the far east side of town all the way down to 7th Street and the Beeline. But not everyone agrees with the $10 million bond appropriation for the proposed Bicentennial Trail projects. During a four-hour City Council discussion of the trail bonds, City Council member Isabel Piedmont-Smith said there are more pressing concerns in in Bloomington than city beautification. Let's put even more icing on our cake. It's relatively easy to do. What would be hard to do and what I think we need to do, what we must do, is address some of the pressing issues those who are less well-off in our community are, are struggling with. Housing, addiction, homelessness, poverty. These are the real challenging issues that I think we could take a big bite out of or a big step towards resolving with an equivalent amount of money. We're talking about $10.265 million. 
That's a lot of money. We could put that towards uh, a partnership with, with Shalom for a Crawford III uh, uh, supported housing project. We could put that towards um, a detox center, which we know our community needs, uh, with, with other partnerships, with other uh, health care providers. Um, we could put that towards uh, land to, you know, lease for a dollar to somebody to build affordable housing. And instead, the proposal is to put more icing on the cake. The municipal bonds will be repaid by increasing property taxes throughout the city limits. Cassandra says Piedmont Smith's concerns are valid, but the city is already putting money into projects aimed at helping alleviate homelessness, addiction, and low-income housing. It's not an either-or. You know, there's already so much happening in terms of the recommendations that came out of the Wage Growth Task Force and the Affordable Housing Task Force and the Safe and Civil City Task Force, um, promoting affordable housing in our community and actually accomplishing that. Also, um, creating jobs and um, stimulating economic activity. Also, going to things like Shalom Community Center, expanding hours. Also, pre-K support for low-income families. Um, doing more with community policing and law enforcement diversion. All of those things are underway. And then thirdly, or maybe I'm on to fourthly now, I guess I would say that investing in our natural and built landscape and investing in mobility and livability and workability through these trails and investments is not purely beautification. This is something that will not just create something beautiful that, you know, some kind of a gated park that only the elite can use. We're talking about investing in public space, in the common good, something that anyone at any point along the socioeconomic scale can use and enjoy, and something that truly enriches this city as a destination. The park board will meet at 4 p.m. today and is expected to give final approval for issuing the bonds. The board meets in the Showers Building, in downtown Bloomington. 17 Indiana State Parks will temporarily close for deer hunts this month, including Brown County State Park and Griffey Nature Preserve. The two-day hunts are scheduled throughout November and December. They are expected to begin next week. State wildlife biologists say reducing a park's deer population helps maintain habitat for other animals and native plants. The city of Bloomington has contracted with hunting firm White Buffalo to recruit and train community hunters to conduct this year's cull. The goal is to cull up to 100 deer from Griffey Lake Nature Preserve. Community hunters are also expected to conduct the deer cull in Brown County State Park. The U.S. Supreme Court has refused a request from the Trump administration to stop an environmental lawsuit that would force the government to take action on climate change. The lawsuit was filed in 2015 by 21 young Americans. They claim the government's inaction has so profoundly damaged the planet that their life and liberty is threatened. The government filed to dismiss the suit the following year. Justices Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch have voiced support for halting the lawsuit, but in an order issued on November 2nd, the Supreme Court directed the government to look to the U.S. Court of Appeals for relief. Over a thousand people were involved in a civil disobedience action in the United Kingdom on Wednesday, October 31st. 
The action blocked several streets near London's Parliament Square for two hours. Organizers are calling themselves the Extinction Rebellion. The group seeks to push the UK government to declare a state of emergency relating to climate change. They also want the UK to be carbon-free by 2025. The protest was organized in response to the recent report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. That report states that there are only 12 years left to prevent catastrophic consequences from climate change. Southern resident orcas are critically endangered. Their population has dropped from 98 in 1995 to 74 today. Recently, the Canadian government announced that it was pursuing several actions to save the species. A $50 million initiative aims to deal with three major threats to the southern residents. First, raising populations of Chinook salmon, the favorite prey of the orca. Second, cleaning up ocean pollution. Third, reducing ship traffic and noise, which disrupts their hunting. The Canadian government also wants to designate new areas of critical habitat for the whales off the west coast of Vancouver Island. The whales live in the Juan de Fuca Strait between Vancouver Island and Washington State. They also live near La Perouse Bank, further to the northwest. The government is considering creating killer whale sanctuaries in the areas of critical habitat. In those sanctuaries, the government can prohibit activities like fishing and ship traffic which harm the whales. A report recently published in the journal Nature compared how people use land today and how they used it in the past. The report finds that people used 15% of the Earth's surface for crops and livestock a hundred years ago. Today, the human activity has altered over 77% of the land, except for Antarctica, and 87% of the ocean. The report also discussed losses to wilderness. It states that between 1993 and 2009, 1.3 million square miles of wilderness were impacted by settlement, farming, mining, and other activities. For WFHB, I'm Todd Wicks. And I'm Don Guerra. We love to hear from our listeners. Contact us about stories we've aired or if you have ideas for future stories. Please send emails to earth at wfhb.org. And now it's Get Out and Hike, showcasing the wonderful wild areas of southern Indiana and beyond. This is Get Out and Hike, and I'm Jan Walker. Hi, I'm Kathy Meyer. I'm the naturalist at Monroe County Parks and Recreation. We have several parks around the county. One of them is Flatwoods Park, which is west of Ellettsville. That is about 200 acres. And I'd like to tell you about one of the trails that is a good one to walk in the winter because it's paved and smooth and it's only half a mile long. So it's a great place to go out as a family, get a little exercise and fresh air. And uh, it starts right at the picnic area where the shelters are at Flatwoods Park. You'll see signs uh, directing you to the Blue Trail, and there are interpretive signs all along the trail that explain the geology of the area, some of the history, and uh, has a lot of uh, information about water, water that flows under the trail at a couple of bridge crossings where McCormick's Creek gets its start, and uh, the water cycle and transpiration and uh, the glacial geology of the area, groundwater. 
So those are some interesting things to read along the way. The, the trail itself goes through some old fields. This had been farmland at one time, and also through the woods and past several wetland areas where it's a good place to listen to frogs in the spring or look for birds and tracks of animals and see other kinds of wildlife. So the trail's open year-round. It's paved and smooth and is a great place for the kids with the tricycles or to walk the dog and just get out of the house for a little while. Sounds like it'd be a great place for uh, maybe some scout groups and maybe some even some daycares or first graders and stuff to learn about our area. Sure, it's it's very easy for young children to to get through, and uh, they like to read the signs. There's also a hollow tree that uh, the kids really like to go climb inside, and it's a great place to take pictures. There's some uh, geocaches in the area too that uh, people can look for if that's if that's one of their outdoor pursuits. Is there a website they can go to to get further information? There is, there is some information about Flatwoods Park at the Monroe County website, Monroe County Parks and Recreation website. The address for that is mcparksandrec.org. So you can go to the website and find information about shelter rentals and the playgrounds and, and other details about the park. And we'd love to have you come and visit us. Next, we'll hear about an elusive animal rarely seen during the day, the bobcat. Correspondent Norm Holy talks about bobcats with Brad Westrich, the non-game mammals expert at the Indiana Department of Natural Resources. We'll hear part one of their conversation today. I'd like to have you talk about bobcats. Uh, are there many in the, in the region? Are they okay. growing in population or are they stable? Gotcha. Well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, bobcats in the region, they are increasing. The overall population trend is increasing uh, since the early 1990s. And we don't actually have a, uh, you know accurate census like we do with humans when we're surveying wildlife populations. All we can do is uh, create surveys and monitor trends over time. And so to monitor the bobcat populations, we have roadkill reports as well as bow hunter surveys. Uh, and then any surveys we produce uh, internally to other DNR departments, to state parks and conservation officers who can report sightings of these bobcats. And so across all these surveys, we've noticed that from the 1990s to about 2015, there's been a really steady increase in the number of bobcats that are seen both in uh, the roadkill surveys as well as the bowhunter surveys, ranging from one person seeing you know, one bobcat in the early 1990s to now they're seeing uh, five or more in a year. Uh, through these surveys, we're also able to pinpoint where these bobcat populations are doing the best. So in southwestern Indiana, you have really strong bobcat populations, and this happens to be a really good source population for the rest of the state, and so you're going to have lots of dispersal from this southwestern region throughout the rest of the state. And bobcats are uh, pretty generalistic in terms of the habitat they can uh, survive in. They are almost common throughout the United States. They live in semi-arid deserts. They live in temperate forests. They can live in mountains. So seeing them expand across uh, Indiana wouldn't surprise us at all. Tell me about the diet of uh, the bobcat. So bobcats are uh, carnivorous, and they primarily eat uh, small animals such as, uh, you know, mice, rats, squirrels. Uh, they also prey on bird species from turkey down through 
uh, your American woodcocks, grouse if they're out in the environment, doves. Uh, they're very uh, sight-oriented predators. They are hunting at night. They have really good night vision, and they're looking for these animals that are moving around at night. And one of those species that they uh, sometimes prey on happens to be the southern flying squirrel, which, although they are uh, a gliding species and they're typically found in trees and up in cavities, they do forage on the ground for uh, nuts, uh, lichens, sometimes even other small animals, small mammals or nestling birds. And in those instances, uh, southern flying squirrels can actually become prey for the bobcat. You know, occasionally you do have bobcats that do come in close encounters with uh, suburbia. And in those instances, you may have bobcats taking domestic cats that may be outdoor cats or even strays. Is there any interaction between coyotes and bobcats? You know, bobcats don't really have any uh, predators once they're an adult. Their largest threat is humans when they reach that adult stage. But when they are young kittens, they can be predated on by uh, anything from a red fox to another bobcat and even coyotes, as you mentioned. Uh, and, and with the coyote populations that we uh, have been observing here in Indiana, you know, that can be a possibility depending on uh, coyotes' access to a bobcat den uh, how well the mother can defend it, things like that. Uh, but it's not something that would limit the bobcat's growth, as we've been seeing uh, with bobcat populations increasing over the past few years. And other than that, they do overlap in terms of their preferred diet. So coyotes will also eat small mammals, uh, small reptiles, small birds, but they're separated in the time that they're active. So they don't typically interact too often with each other in terms of competition for resources, since the bobcats are nocturnal. Is the bobcat considered to be a keystone species? I'd say it's a good indicator species rather than a keystone species. It's very important to have these mesopredators in the environment since we lost our top trophic predators, you know, the bears and the wolves and mountain lions with uh, westward expansion in the early 1800s. Those animals were predominantly hunted out of existence in Indiana out of fear. Uh, so they were hunted for meat. They were hunted for their furs uh, as settlers were moving further west. But it was predominantly fear that, you know, these top predators would harm humans. And so that left this, this really large niche for uh, these mesopredators, these middle-sized predators, to really take over and expand. And so you see the expansion of coyotes and bobcats in areas. And so they're filling this, this empty void that large predators left. And they're able to uh, be observed in numbers that uh, likely you wouldn't have been able to see 200 years ago with top predators roaming around, uh, putting some pressure on the bobcat populations. But I wouldn't necessarily call them a keystone species, definitely uh, a necessary species in the environment, because they do eat a lot of these small rodents, which are, uh, you know, known carriers of, of various tick species, uh, various pathogens that could potentially affect humans. And so with bobcats putting pressures on these lower species, such as mice and other birds, uh, they're actually doing humans a favor. By, by keeping some of those, you know, tick species down, uh, as well as pathogens that humans might come in contact with. That was Brad Westrich, the non-game mammals expert at the Indiana Department of Natural Resources, talking about the nocturnal bobcat with WFHB's Norm Holy. 
We heard part one of their conversation today. Join us next week when Westridge and Holy discuss another nocturnal creature, the flying squirrel. Are you looking for a way to take action on environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. Give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at WFHB. And now it's time for In Nature, written and recorded by EcoReport contributors, past and present. This is In Nature. Which mammal has more teeth than any other in the state? If you answered opossum, you are correct. The Virginia opossum has 50 teeth, reflecting its prehistoric roots of 70 million years. The often maligned opossum is also known as being the only native marsupial in North America. Although rat-like in appearance, opossums are more closely related to kangaroos. An opossum gives birth to as many as 20 bean-sized, underdeveloped young who must climb to their mother's pouch. Those who survive the climb then compete for one of the mother's 13 teats, where they remain attached for two months before leaving the pouch. The opossum is an excellent tree climber due to the opposable toe on each of its back feet and its long, hairless, prehensile tail that can grip tree limbs to stabilize the animal as it climbs. Although slow and seemingly not so smart, the opossum, as a species, has done well. It can be found throughout most of Central America and the United States, having expanded into Canada over the last few decades. Opossums live in woodlands, farmland, and urban areas and prefer places near water. They are nocturnal and solitary. The opportunistic opossum will eat anything available, including insects, fruits, grains, garbage, and pet food. Its success can be attributed to its adaptability to human habitats. Opossums not only tolerate human settlements, they flourish and have a greater survival rate near them. City opossums on average weigh a third more than their country cousins. And those 50 teeth? When frightened, the opossum may hiss and bare its mouth full of teeth, yet they seldom bite. This small marsupial is really quite placid, preferring to avoid confrontation. You've been listening to In Nature. This week in our listening area, if you are a composter or looking to start, plan to attend the IU Hilltop Gardens composting class. Recycling and reusing in your garden will be held this Saturday, November 10th, from 10 a.m. to noon. Hilltop Gardens is located at 2367 East 10th Street. Find out what can be composted, what can't, and how to do it. Today is the last day to register at bloomington.in.gov parks. McCormick's Creek State Park will be having an information session on backyard birds on Saturday, November 10th. Participants will learn how to take care of their bird feeders over the winter and ways to help the birds out, too. The event will be held at the Nature Center from 10 to 10.30 a.m.
Take a Cascades Waterfall Hike on Sunday, November 11th from 2 to 3 p.m. at the Upper Cascades Park in Bloomington. A mildly challenging walk will take you to the waterfall. Register at bloomington.in.gov parks. Brown County State Park is having their last leaf hike of the season this Sunday, November the 11th at 2 p.m. Meet at the Lake Strawl parking lot to enjoy the last colorful glow of the autumn weaves before winter. You can also learn about endangered animals at Brown County State Park. Next Friday, November 16th, the naturalist will be talking about some of the endangered animals in south-central Indiana. The presentation will be in the Nature Center and starts at 2 p.m. Adopt-A-Highway Cleanup Day is scheduled at McCormick's Creek State Park on Saturday, November 17th from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Volunteers will help clean up the stretch of Highway 46 bordering the park. Meet at the Westbrook Shelter. All supplies will be provided. The 11th Annual Greening of the State House will take place on Saturday, November 17th. It will be at the Honeywell Center in Wabash, Indiana and run from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. It will be a day of education, advocacy, and networking with a keynote address by Dr. Jeff Reuter. A catered lunch will be provided. Contact the Hoosier Environmental Council at 317-685-8800 for information and to register. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Linda Green, Norm Holy, Andrew Brown, Sarah Vaughn, and Wes Martin. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Andrew Brown and Sarah Vaughn edited the script. Jan Walker produced Get Out and Hike, and Cindy Bolle edited the segment. Sarah Vaughn engineered today's show. Our interim producer is Jan Walker, and executive producer is Wes Martin. Tune in on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. and Fridays at 5 p.m. for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. You can also access news, feature audio, and get out and hike episodes anytime at wfhb.org. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Todd Wicks. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is 
earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org. Thank you.